before that, I met you from you being Around showing up at the uh, Mermaid Lounge. Mermaid Lounge to see the Naked Orchestra, which you immediately you wanted to play with. Well, you, you recruited me into the band at, at on, that on site. On site, right? Yeah, which Snakebite didn't like, as I recall. Uh, yeah. <laughs> this is the man. <laughs> yes, defending thrones that don't exist. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, Snakebite's a great guy. I love him, but you know, I didn't know that there was that much. Competition for playing in the in the, the orchestra, in the yeah, yeah, yeah. Although you know that's good, I'm flattered. No, I mean I, I love I love snake bite and everything, you know, whatever. But I had room for more than my baritone sax. Oh sure, and then I, I moved to bass sax pretty quick. So yeah, because Tim had been doing the job and Tim, yeah. Tim switched out. But what um, th you were doing more things like that at that point, and you were very much more. I mean, I was I was I was militant about it for a while. Yeah, what was that? Where is that coming from? Why were you militant about it? Well, that? I mean, uh, I, you know, okay. P part of it was working through just some personal emotional issues, and I'm uh -huh. willing to kind of accept that as, you know, a, something that happened. But also part of it was just something that I felt, something that I still feel I just kind of had to do. To, it was just, a, 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 you know, a step in my musical development to which nothing else... Would, I wouldn't have gotten to anything else, even the most inside commercial stuff. I just never wouldn't be able to get there and do that without taking this step. The reason being, I've come up in this, you know, always in school, the school musician, the band kid. This uh -huh. very regimented thing where no one, you know, ultimately I've made my living primarily as an improviser. Uh -huh. Even if it's like improvising parts, it's still coming from this place of the improviser. Uh -huh. You know, and come being in this music education background where there is no improvising uh-huh uh, how do you learn to improvise mm -hmm. and then you know I didn't have any teachers around me until I got to college so I mean I'm you know when you're figuring things out on your own you there's a danger of a lot of mistaken assumptions mm -hmm. one mistaken assumption that I had was that someone was gonna tell me what I needed to do uh -huh. And I just needed to find that person, uh -huh. and that, and I didn't know what to do until I found that person. In terms of how I was, what I was going to work on and practice, and how I was going to develop. Uh -huh. and this just proved to be a mistaken assumption. No, you have to learn to teach yourself. Uh -huh. You know, and so kind of went through many years of not working on what I needed to be working on, because I was kind of waiting for this person that was going to tell me what I needed to do. I'm glad you're phrasing it that way because I was talking about I can't remember to whom about about the persistent way that you see a lot of people in the current gener young generation of musicians seem to be waiting around for somebody to offer them approval. And and you know and and, and then and then so. you know I was like okay yeah I'm gonna go to New Orleans and I'm gonna be in the school with these guys that are like in magazines and shit and that's gonna be cool and I'm gonna learn and then I get there and it just like that didn't really work for me and it was you know. The, I mean, the, 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 the process that they were putting forth was so, so specific and so limiting even in just the context of jazz education. I mean, even, even the limiting paradigm of jazz education can be so much broader than what they were offering at that time at this that school. This was up at Loyola. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think since then it's even changed, you know, because I've, I've had peers that were at Loyola and had a better experience at different times, but... Uh -huh. Uh, it just seems so specific and so, like, this is something that might work for, like, one in 50 people that wants to be a jazz educator, even. Yeah. yeah. 
You know what I mean? Because it's so specific. It's so like with Jimbo. Jimbo, one one of my favorite things that Jimbo says is that you know, music theory is crackpot conspiracy theory, <laughs> and therefore it's okay to take or leave whatever you want and uh-huh. or make up your own crackpot conspiracy theory. Uh huh. And. The stuff that they were putting at Loyola at that time, that stuff is crackpot conspiracy theory, let me tell you. And I mean, it's like, uh-huh. if that's this one guy's crackpot conspiracy theory, and I'm supposed to like learn, like crack this huge nut of what it is to play music in 2000 and fucking yeah. 2000, the year 2000 when I got to Loyola, you know, based on this so esoteric and intellectual and specific thing. And then, you know, I just didn't know how to react to that. I didn't know... Mm-hmm what to do and then I was noticing like huh you know I'm buying these records that I think of as jazz because I'm in this jazz studies program and I'm trying to study jazz but this type what I'm hearing on these records is not the jazz that's being put forth as what I need to be learning or doing or putting out as my art or whatever by these by the school so you know I basically just was like what the fuck this is fucked up I'm not going to try and be a musician anymore I'm just going to you know, you know, I'll stay in the music program and, and take lots of common curriculum, like liberal arts classes, until I figure out what my switched major is going to be. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, and then, you know, I did music therapy, thought about the music education, I was like, okay, what is my career? I was in this, you know, I've got to find this new career because this whole performing shit is just fucked and I'm not going to do it. And so I wasn't really shedding and I wasn't really, like, doing anything until I went to New York to this as kind of this like last ditch thing. I was like, you know, everyone tells me that this workshop series, the School for Improvisational Music in New York is super hip. Simon Lott went there, Brian Coogan, a bunch of people that you know went mm-hmm. there. Yeah. Brad Walker, you know. Uh, no, no, wait, wait. This is in New York. It's New like York. a work, workshop series. Oh, okay, I didn't know that. And it was just kind of this like last ditch thing. I'm like, okay, I'm gonna see what these people are talking about. If this is cool, then you know, maybe I'll keep trying to be Try, try, I'll, I'll continue to try to play music. You know? oh. And I went there and they were basically like, what the fuck, dude? Just play music. Like, who are you into? Uh-huh. Uh, well, you know, he lives on 52nd Street. Why don't you go get a lesson? Uh-huh. Why don't you try to play this music that these people play that you actually listen to? Uh huh. You know, and I was like, you know, this seems obvious, right? But this was this major revelation to me at the time. Yeah. And so, from this, I was just like, you know, basically, I was just like, fuck Loyola, fuck my teachers, I now have an agenda. Mm. And I need to be doing this, and became kind of obsessive about it. I mean, the drummer, Jay Steigner, we were, you know, we would, like, have these free improv jam sessions every day, and we had to do it every day. We did it for, like, you know, I don't know, like, something like three months straight or something. Every single day, not a day missed. And almost every day for like a year and a half. Mm-hmm. Just a few days missed here and there. I mean, and this is when I learned to play the saxophone. Mm-hmm. Because I, I went into it with like, not necessarily trying to make the best music in this free improvisation setting, but to like work out techniques, like to be able to play all the multiphonics and the slap tongue and the, you know, whatever, whole tone, 12 tone, whatever shit that I was thinking I was hearing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I don't know. I, I, mean, I remember going into a lesson with Tony DeGrati and, like, you know, coming back from the summer of being in school improvisational music and just being like, no, what you say, I don't care. Yeah. I'm not doing anything that you want me to do. We're going to do this in my lesson and you can fail me if you want or you can just get with it and we can have a good time. How did that work out for you? It, great. 
I mean, in a sense, I owe my whole career to this moment because because of this, he got me the gig with James Singleton. Okay. And three now four because of that moment. That was like you were suddenly qualified. The fact yeah. You walked in and were like, "Yeah, I'm not gonna sit here and do." Okay, great. That's very interesting. And and because I work with James was you know in New Orleans, you go and you hang, you make the hang, and the first question anyone asks you is, "Who do you play with?" Mm. At least in my experience. And so I I you know from my my first like major professional gigs were with James Singleton at the time when James was playing all the time and 200 people would come to his shows right. or 100 people whatever at the Dragon's Den you know what I mean and uh, so I mean it's a good you know it's a good resume thing to, to tell people and because I was playing with James I got other calls and I suddenly had a career like from playing music in New Orleans from doing absolutely nothing sitting on my hands to playing three, four, five times a week right in New Orleans in like I don't know, the space of a month. At what point in there were you playing with... Uh, let me let me see here. When you said you had to deal with... You, you mentioned earlier that you were... You know, the, there were certain emotional things that you had to deal with by playing all of that improvisational music. Did you mean that, that all the issues that you're talking about here is what you meant by that emotional stuff? Yeah, like... And, okay. and feelings of inadequacy from being in this environment that, I, where I, that I'm being told, this is what you need to yeah. do if you want to play music. And it yeah. just being this utter failure... Can you think of a way that they should be approaching the subject? Uh, the emphasis needs to be on creating a personal program. Mm -hmm. And if the, a student isn't ready to create a personal program, then it basically just needs to be... Uh, they should be working on more, less stylistic oriented and more basic kind of musicality things. Like everyone needs a good ear. Right. Everyone needs good time. If you're not ready to develop your program of your agenda musically, let's work on that. Uh -huh. Let's not play these kind of really esoteric, constructed two-five licks all day. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because that's already very far into the realm of a stylistic agenda. Yeah. To be the first thing that you give someone when they walk in the door yeah. is a little weird. You know what I mean? Uh, I mean, what if they want to play trad? Yeah. Then yeah. these two five licks are completely useless. You know what I mean? And that's something that even the jazz educators would say is is jazz. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Okay, good. I was just trying to work that out. Okay, at what point in here were you playing with the other planets? Uh, pretty early. Uh, Jeff Albert quit the band, and I was Jeff's replacement, and that was probably within a year of starting to play with James and you. I started playing with you right almost like probably within weeks maybe okay. days of playing with James right which is almost the same set of folk players around uh, I mean not really but, but uh, you know it's a different group but it was a lot of the same people moving and moving in and out of those situations okay and uh, what what tell me about the other plan tell me about the planets at the start out and what that was about and how that relates to everything and whether that's New Orleans music and what we're talking about well I mean you know, the way Jimbo would talk about it is it's this, you know, other planets is this confluence of the downwardly mobile. Okay. You know, people from this white middle class background that kind of freak out because the whole that whole paradigm is fucked and dying and, you know, well, what do we do? Well, we're creative people. Let's move to New Orleans and be fucking bohemians. Okay. So in that sense, it is New Orleans. This is one of the places, one of the remaining places, especially at that time, more than now, 
is one of the places you could still do that, where you could still, you know, Anthony and I lived together for a while, and we were paying like 200 bucks a month in rent. Uh, I know the story well. I mean, yeah. I, I lived that story too, only a little bit earlier, so it was 50 bucks cheaper. Right. I mean, yeah. I mean, we, we, you know, Anthony and I were the last generation of that. Yeah. And Katrina killed it. We were the, yeah. the end, the yeah. final, the last gasp, the death knell. The death knell to local bohemianism. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, and I mean, for me, at first, it was, I mean, I was not, especially early on, a big creative force. I was the, the horn player. There was a horn player in the band, and I'm doing the gig, and then it turned out that, you know, uh, I was creatively aligned and became slightly more, mm. you know invested creatively but I mean it's always has been and always will be Anthony and Jimbo's thing uh -huh, you know? uh -huh. interesting I mean one thing I have to say I mean every band of you know based on the story I just told you you can see this is an argument you made that I started playing music relatively late and got serious even later you know and basically you know I was decided I was gonna start shedding for the first time ever in life and then was a professional music musician within a year Right. So, and in a sense, I've been playing every band I get, I get in. I can't really play the music. I have to learn to play it. And uh. you know, at each each new band, it gets easier. Mm -hmm. You know, because it's more experience. But other plans was pretty early on in this, and I was screwing the pooch pooch pretty bad early on. And so I got to say, like Anthony, especially Anthony, got my rhythm time concept a lot more together. Cool. Called me out on playing out of tune all the time. So did James. That's good. And so, uh, let me see. So this is all, it's funny because it's all fairly tribalistic stuff, and I'm about to go over to the uh, to the Chaz Fest, which is also um, pretty tribalistic stuff. Um, what's your perception now of what's going We talked about this a little earlier, so I want to get into a little bit more of it. But what's going on with the current musical scene, local scene in music in New Orleans? I mean, we talked over, you know, the, the resurgence of this trad thing. What's going on? I've done several interviews with uh, different angles. This, I mean, I've thought about this a lot, and yeah. you know, because I'm involved in it, I and mean, I play in a relatively successful young person's trad band in New Orleans, mm -hmm. and I find it's so it's incredibly complicated. It's there's so many levels to it. I mean, it's on the one hand, I think it's awesome because I think it's great music and I think that people should be playing it. You mean the music that was, you know, you mean you're talking about the study of the, of the people that made that music originally? Yeah, sure, I mean, okay, if you, you know, for the longest time I've kind of modeled my musical philosophy based on readings that I've done of the philosophy of Anthony Braxton. It makes a lot of sense to me, some of it, not all of it, but some of the basic things make a lot of sense to me. One thing that he talks about is the three kinds of musicians that are necessary to co coexist in a musical community for a positive, mm -hmm. continually evolving, mutually beneficial environment. Mm -hmm. Calls these three people the, the experimentalists, stylists, and traditionalists. Mm -hmm. An experimentalist is somebody that performs musical experiments, mm -hmm. pure and simple. Some of them are successful, some of them are not. Some mm -hmm. of them sound good, some of them don't. The mm -hmm. point is, it's the, the point is to be experimenting, not, uh -huh. not to create not to live in an aesthetic world that is pleasing to you or anyone else. Uh -huh. 
uh, the stylists are the ones that take the findings of the experimentalists and determine this determine the aesthetics. Uh, they're still experimental and definitely original because they are creating that space. The experimentalists didn't create any space; they just performed some experiments. Uh-huh. You know, then the traditionalists basically preserve for history the stylists, what the stylists do. Okay. And and that to have living, breathing people in front of you preserving this thing is important. That the recordings are not adequate. Mm-hmm. The question, though, is... No, this is just... This is what I'm saying. It's fucking complicated. It's not that simple as when it relates to New Orleans. Okay. You know, and then there's there's also the argument is are the people that are playing this music in New Orleans actually traditionalists? Are they actually preserving anything? Or... Is, is what they're playing kind of modern trad. Kind of like this this new style that is basically defined by a hundred years in New Orleans of people playing this music and that music evolving and also being informed by the professional necessities of the show and of the gig. You know, and, and so how trad is it really? And does that matter? Maybe that's actually a good thing. Maybe that says that, okay, this is a living music and the fact that it isn't really some fucking George Lewis shit as played in 1940 maybe that's a good thing I, or is it not oh, I don't know but I mean it's something to acknowledge the music has changed the people that are you know the, what I don't like is this kind of dogmatic attitude this, where people, the trad Nazi thing where like you're not trad enough I'm so trad and a lot of the, the, the ways that people kind of make these judgments are based on such these minor little things okay somebody played this way for a time period between 1980 1928 and 31 and that's the way and right. and a lot of the people and some of the people that are kind of behaving in this manner don't even know that don't know that okay what you were actually talking about is not some deep meaning of what trad jazz is it is the process of, of a particular group of bands that recorded for vocalion you know what I mean? At this particular, or whatever, RCA, at this particular time uh-huh. in history. And so, what the fuck? What about all this other music that also happened from 1931 to 1932? Or from 1925 to 1926? Or, I mean, even in, even in, the, even in the careers of just single musicians. Like, Jelly, let's say, take Jelly Roll Morton as an example. I mean, there's some very modern sounding wild shit that he plays in some very New Orleans with a capital N-O recordings to be found too. So what's the way? What is the way really? Oh, I can tell you so many things about that comedy of the right changes and all that nonsense. But you know, what, what, uh, what but you're I talking know about more of a social, on a more of a social level than a musical, economic? Uh, both. I mean, I, I think there's, uh, you know, I, I, you know, for me, it, what do it, I, for me, it's very simple. It was a, a music that that thrived off of innovation, and the and the and the artists that everyone talks about were very innovative, interesting people. And now, what you have is a bunch of ultimately boring, uncreative people. You know, hanging around, removing the life and the developmental aspect because they're afraid they're afraid to have their style develop. 
It's total fear. Because they're afraid that they, because they haven't been approved of yet by dead people. In other words, it's like waiting around for ghosts to approve of what you're doing before you can move on. So who's going to come along and say, hey man, you play jazz trumpet real good. I mean, and, I, I and it's going to be somebody that they think, think is qualified. I don't think it's waiting for dead people. I don't think it's necessarily yeah. waiting for dead people. I think it's... Uh, there's this... With the, a lot of the young bands, there's this kind of like... Not on a musical level, but on a social level, this kind of punk attitude of like I haven't fit into society, and I've you know, and I've been hopping trains, or I've been bussing tables, or living whatever kind of fringe lifestyle, and but somebody at some point gave me this instrument, or I was around a bunch of other weirdos that were playing this music, and so maybe I'll try to do it, and then it becomes limiting because it's very tribal like you say it comes out of this insular community of emotionally damaged people that are in, on some level it does not this is not everyone but you know p people that are afraid to on some level to interact and assimilate into the rest of society because their fear of not getting that approval because they haven't in the past. It's not even musical approval. And then this translates to the musical environment because that you're this it's this very insulated, isolated musical community. Most of these kids don't play with people outside of it, even other traditional musicians. Yeah. So and they so, have to cling on. And so and there's like they go and they hear the someone that like actually sounds the best in town on the, any whatever given instrument and this person is someone that owns a house, drives a car lives in Metairie. Yeah. And this freaks them out. Uh-huh. You know, and so then it's like, how do you explain this away? How do you make it okay for me to still be the, 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 the you know, the punk kid? Yeah. Why are they, why are they picking this kind of music? Uh, I think... As an expression of this. I think there's lots of factors. One is, is, is purely logistical. There's no electricity required. So it's cheap because you don't need electricity. You, you can set up anywhere. If, okay. if you're like traveling the country and you need to make some money, you can set up on the street and you can make some money. I see. Okay. You know, it's the same reason. Like, it's not the only style that the, that this community has embraced. String band music is another style for the same reason. Yeah. You know, and then there's it's the same way scenes get started. The cool kids started a band in New Orleans, and everybody wanted to be like them. Uh huh. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. So okay, so that and then and then the, the the establishment of New Orleans saw that this was a population that could be exploited and that money could be made off of them mm -hmm. because they work cheaper than the old guys. Uh huh. You know what I mean? And they'll. Yeah. But it's interesting because it's supplanted almost every other kind of music. in the clubs now. It's like I can't believe how much of this nonsense is going on. Once it's again, like, it's many factors. Another big part of it was the uh, the the. The re one of the big reasons that it's that the clubs have embraced it is because they bring the dancers in. There was because there was this there's a swing dance community. There's a few talented swing dancers that moved to New Orleans, like scene makers, people that are on this international scene of swing dance conventions that uh -huh. like get paid to go and do workshops. And it's like this, you know, uh -huh. they're the gurus in this world of swing dancing, which mm -hmm. until recently was its own world, not attached to musicians. I got you. 
But they, they came to New Orleans and started a school and, and now there's this community of swing dancers in New Orleans because these scene makers started it and these people, it's bodies in the club, people buying drinks. It's a huh. built-in audience before you even get to the tourists. Yeah, I mean, all of the bars were complaining about the lack of drinking going on for a long time. What, I mean, like, okay, I'm saying this is why it started. I'm, yeah, I, I, I mean, got you, I understand. It, you know, it, the club owner sees bodies. It takes a few months before you realize that they're not buying drinks. Uh-huh. The club owner has seen bodies, and by then the damage is done. <laughs> yeah, okay, good. Um, it's damage done everywhere, but so let me let me ask so let me ask first. When we were talking last time, I mean, uh, let's put it this way. I mean, you, you we, we were, you know, from my perspective, it's it's a nightmare. I'm I'm waiting to blow over, and you were saying recently that you think it is blowing over. Yeah. Yeah, let's discuss that. What are the indicators that it's blowing over, and what's coming in instead? What, what what's going on? What's the what's the development? What do we got? What's changing? Well, I mean, I I feel like there's not any. You know, there was a new band every fucking third day uh-huh. for a while there. Yeah, playing this music, and there's not new bands. The mm-hmm. bands that the the best the best bands, and by let's qualify best by best I mean not just just musically but like will show up to a gig at a club a regular gig at a club more or less on time over a span of many months Mm -hmm. will not get fired you know what I mean yeah not just you know the ones that the bring the people in the most and maybe play the best maybe but I think that's relatively low Uh on the on the hierarchy it's more the, the professionalism and the draw the bands that are at the top of the food chain on that level are working and they've got their gigs, and they've been doing the same gigs. You know, the, uh, there's not a lot of shuffling or changing, or it's stable. Stability means stagnation is degradation, right? I mean, it's like, yeah. you know, so I think these bands will continue to work. I don't think, I think this is like this new chunk mm-hmm. that is here to stay mm-hmm. for the foreseeable future, but I don't think it's growing like a cancer like it once was eating everyone else's opportunities Mm -hmm. uh i do see i feel like you know dba is booking a few other things uh maison was trying to go trad and failed Mm -hmm. and is you know basically a brass band club but has like modern jazz groups in there too Mm -hmm. you know like for a while you could not get a gig playing fucking Tank, 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 jazz, but you can play it at Bacchanal, you can play it at Maison, you can, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, I feel like we're just at the beginning of it and maybe it's my wishful thinking, you know? I mean, I, but, uh, I don't feel like I'm meeting someone that is moving to town to be a swing dancer every third second. Yeah, which is what was going on before. Yeah. And what do you think happened to all those people? Are they now well integrated into things here? Are they? Is that why it is? Or did they leave town? Or what's the story? There's still a lot of them here, and I don't really know those people. So I mean, yeah. you know, part of the way I like to put myself forward, I'm not going to be the kid with the suspenders and the fucking straw hat. Right. Really being the guy, the trad guy for you. The way I choose to market myself in this community as the person that can fucking play. Yeah. Ask me to, to, you know, I will be on early to rehearsal, give me a list of songs, and I will have learned them, you know, and, but I'm not going to be 
the trad kid. Right. I'm the guy that can play. I'm the ringer. Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting. You know? <laughs> like, there's a few of you floating around out there on the stands doing that now, where, where, where it kind of cracks me up because it's like there's guys like you or Ray Moore or Rick Trollson or something that are somehow like, you know, it's great because all really good players and you're getting up and doing those songs you know with the capability just, of doing just something to be clear, else my with interest, a lot of people have my no in, other my interest in this music if I didn't have a real interest in this music I wouldn't be doing it yeah. I have enough work yeah okay but and my interest in this music predates this phenomenon in New Orleans by many years uh, uh-huh. my interest in this music began with my fascination with the bass saxophone and right. wanting to know about people that have played it there is one exactly one great jazz bass saxophone virtuoso in the history of the music. His name was Adrian Rolini, and he played with Big Spiderbeck. Okay. So I found this out as relatively young, I mean, not young, but 10, 12 years ago, and started listening to traditional jazz because Adrian Rolini played with Big Spiderbeck, who was one of the uh-huh. main guys. Uh-huh. And, you know, and I played bass saxophone in this band. Uh-huh. So 